I'd like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. This morning we are going to consider Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Philippians chapter 3, the focus of the sermon this morning will be on verses uh, four, <clears throat> 4 through 6, but I would like to begin the reading in verse, uh, in verse 1, and I think I would like to read until verse 8. And so the focus will be on verses 4 through 6, but we will begin the reading in verse 1. Before we hear God's word, if you would, join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together, friends. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, which is more precious to us than silver and gold and sweeter to the taste than even honey, the honey from the honeycomb. We pray, Father, that as your word pours out to us today as it is read and proclaimed this morning, we pray, Father, that you would create in us that desire for your word, that we would truly receive it and be satisfied by it and be lifted up and encouraged. We pray, Father, that the power of the gospel would not return to you void, but that you would convert lost sinners and that you would build up the saints in truth and in righteousness. We pray, Father, that you would do this good work to the praise of your glorious grace in Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, this is the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Well, Paul mentions confidence in the flesh in verse 4. In fact, he mentions this two times in this section. And if we count verse 3, and if we count the fact that he says here in this section, I have more, which is referring to confidence in the flesh, then he refers to confidence in the flesh a total of four times in this short amount of verses. He does this from two different perspectives. In verse 4 he says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. Who is this anyone? Well, here he primarily has in view the Judaizers, these false teachers that were mentioned in verse 2, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. These are the false teachers possibly within striking distance of this church, who would seek to impose circumcision onto these Christians in Philippi 
as a necessary requirement in order to be accepted with God and to be made part of God's people. They believe, these Judaizers believe, that as a mean, that observance of the law, adherence to the Torah, as a mean, is, was a means by which someone could gain right or gain a right standing before God. When in reality, and this is what we looked at last time, in reality, only those who have been adopted into God's family by faith in Christ, only those are truly able to worship by the Spirit of God, as, as Paul uh, says here. Those are, this is us. These are Christians who are included in God's family, believing and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And thus, this group of Jewish false teachers would demand that Gentiles seeking inclusion in God's covenant and seeking adoption into God's covenant people, that they would need to be circumcised. In other words, their lack of circumcision was an actual barrier to them in order to be made part of God's family. That's what these false teachers believed. And so that is... That was out there as a form of false teaching, and so Paul is warning this church, beware of them, look out for them. Now, you might be thinking here, as you're, you're hearing this, that if you were ever approached by a teacher or a group of teachers demanding such a thing, if you might be thinking, well, if I was a Christian living in Philippi, and there was this group that showed up, and they demanded that we be circumcised, I would easily see through this heresy. I would easily see through it, and I would immediately reject it. And maybe we would. And so we might be asking the question, then why would then Christians in Philippi need to be warned about teaching that was clearly heretical? Shouldn't they see it for what it is right up front? Well, I think we have to understand a couple of things in order to understand the threat of this of this um, heresy. I think we have to understand, first of all, the nearness of first century Christians, like those in Philippi, to the dramatic change in redemptive history that happened once with the coming of Jesus Christ. Until the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, into history, the covenant of blessings of God were, for the most part, restricted the covenant blessings of God were, for the most part, restricted to one race of people, the Israelites, the blood of Abraham. Think about what Paul says in Romans 9. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the providence, the, the promises. It was given to them and no one else, to the Israelites and no one else. This was an objective reality. This was, a, this was an undebatable fact about God's dealing with any, anyone in the world. He primarily dealt with the Israelites, and he did so for 2,000 years. The promise came to Abraham and his children, and his children and no one else. Now, of course, as you read through the Old Testament, you, you'll see that here and there, God does extend his grace out to others, other non-Israelite people throughout the course of redemptive history. You might think of the Ninevites in Jonah's day. They repented at, at Jonah's preaching. Or you might think about Ruth, the Moabitess. She was shown grace, saving grace by God. Or Rahab and her family. She was a Canaanite. 
It is also true that within these covenant promises, even though God was only dealing with one people, one race, for a time, within these covenant promises, God always had his eye on the nations. That was the point from the very beginning, that through Abraham's seed, God would extend his saving grace to all people, that a blessing would come to all nations. And so his, his goal, his eye, was on the nations from the very beginning. That's us. We are a part of the nation. So his eye was on us from the very beginning, that we would be blessed. But this, all of that didn't change the fact, the fact that he did show people like Ruth and, and Rahab mercy, and the fact that the, the promises to, included blessing to the nations, all of that didn't change the fact that God originally and only covenanted with Israel, their descendants, the Hebrews, until Christ came. That was a, an objective fact until the coming of the Messiah. With Christ's death on the cross, though, that dividing wall had been torn down permanently. And now because of what Christ has done, all nations, anyone, may come and receive the blessings of God. They, they come, believe in Christ, and be adopted into his family. This is what has happened for us. We were of the nations. And yet because Christ has come, there's no more dividing wall. And so whether Jew or Gentile, you may come freely to Jesus Christ and be saved and be made part of the true Israel. You will be grafted into the Israelite tree. That is what has been that is what has happened to us, and that is what is offered to all people in the gospel. Now, this was true for these largely uncircumcised Philippians in the first century. These uncircumcised, for the most part, Philippian Christians would were grafted into Christ, made part of God's people. They would thus begin learning about all the things that were given to Israel, all the blessings that God had shown to Israel. They would hear about them and learn about them from the Holy Scriptures. They would know that all that God had done for the blood of Abraham in the Old Testament Scriptures. One of those things was that he gave them the sign of circumcision. And so think about this from the Philippian perspective which may have included some Jewish believers, but these are, these are Gentiles. These are formerly and still Roman citizens. They're living in Philippi, but have become Christians. Here come, they, they know about God's dealings with Israel, and here come these blood-born Jewish teachers, and they're circumcised. They have the Torah, they have the knowledge of the Torah, they have all this rich history that's in the Bible, that these Gentile Christians are learning. They have all this rich history of God's people, or of God dealing with their people, and their people only. And so then from that perspective, you can see how a group like the Philippians might be intimidated by these Jew Jewish people, this Jewish group coming along and saying, you need to be circumcised. Look, it's right here in the Old Testament scriptures. We're the sons of Abraham. We're the daughters of Abraham. You need to be circumcised. You aren't. And so you can understand the, the, the pull that that might have, the intimidation that that might come with this group and with this teaching. The Philippians would not, now the flip, with this said, the Philippians would not have an excuse for being deceived like this. But you can understand the danger, I think, 
the threat, if you look at it from their side. And so Paul helps this congregation with this by giving them doctrinal defense, a system based on salvation by works. He was giving them a doctrinal defense against that system. That's what they were bringing. A system of theology that says you can be saved by works. Acceptance with God comes by way of adherence to outward religious rites or merely outward religious rites. That's what these Judaizers were bringing to the table. And so Paul gives the church a defense against that. And this is for us as well. This is a doctrinal defense against any, any type of false teaching. And this is really what verses 1 through 11 is about. It's a doctrinal defense of the gospel. And so we're going to be digging deep into doctrine here for the next uh, few weeks in this section. And this gives us a defense against all types of heresy. But for the Philippians, it was this Jewish heresy. But before Paul could get into this doctrine, he gives the Philippians something that they can use against this Judaizing heresy. And it's something that Paul himself has. And this is the, this is the next perspective that Paul gives. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. And this is what these heretics would claim to have, confidence in the flesh. And so their argument would be to the Gentile Christians in Philippi, Don't you too want to have confidence in the flesh? Don't you want to be confident that you are actually accepted by God? We have that. We're circumcised. We have this confidence. Don't, wouldn't you like to participate in in that and have the confidence that we have? Wouldn't you like to be circumcised like us? That's their, that's their teaching. And so Paul says, okay, well, they're claiming this. Well, I have that. I have that already. The very thing that they say that you need, I have. And I have even more reason for confidence in the flesh. So I'm going to step into their system and think about this for a while. And then Paul gives the Philippians reasons for why he could have more confidence in the flesh than these false teachers. And that's what this section is about. They are telling you, that you can have a confidence in the flesh, well, I have that. In fact, I have more. And let me show you what that is that I have. If we're, if we're looking for confidence in the flesh, let me show you what that is. And Paul gives here a list of reasons he has confidence in the flesh. The first four deal with what he had by birth, and the next three deal with what he could potentially boast in in, re- in regard to what he did. This is who I am by birth. This is what I've done. These are the reasons why I could have confidence in the flesh, like these Judaizers. So first, Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day. This was one of the main points of contention with this heresy, the sign of circumcision. In their minds, so long as people like the Philippians in this community, mostly Gentiles, So long as they were not circumcised, they should not be regarded as those who were within the covenant community. And so, because of their uncircumcision, according to these false teachers, they should be regarded as outside the covenant. Circumcision was something these Jews had. These false teachers had. They were circumcised. Gentiles, on the other hand, for the most part, did not. Paul says, I'm circumcised. 
I was circumcised as a baby on the eighth day in exact accordance with Old Testament law. Now we see an example of this with Jesus even. And if you go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, we are told this, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Jesus was also circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says he's of the people of Israel. In terms of worldly power or worldly class and honor at this time, to be Roman, that is what you wanted people to hear. If you wanted to get clout or have clout in the world and to have dignity from people in the world, just tell them you're Roman. If you actually are Roman, and that was true, you, would, you should receive that honor. That's what you wanted to be. But in terms of acceptance with God, in terms of spiritual dignity, if we could say it that way, in covenant with God, in terms of being regarded as children of God, as Paul says in chapter 2, to be Roman virtually meant nothing. In terms of your relationship with God, it meant nothing. But to be Israel, now that meant something. To be part of the nation of Israel. That meant you were part of God's chosen people. Which, as we've just said, that is who God primarily dealt with up until this time. For thousands of years, that's how it was up until the time of the writing of this letter. That meant something. Paul saying that he was of the people of Israel meant that he was a pure-blood Israelite. He was not a muggle, for the you Harry Potter fans out there. He had not been converted to the Israelite way of life. He was born into it. He wasn't crafted into it. He was born into it. He was born into it by way of pure-blood Israelite parents. So he was purely of the tribe of Israel. In addition to this, Paul's bloodline in Israel traced back to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Benjamin was born to Rachel. Benjamin was her last born son to Jacob, the baby of the family. It was from the tribe of Benjamin that Israel called their first king, King Saul, which was most likely where Paul got his name. His name is Saul. He was also called Paul. Saul was chosen from the tribe of Benjamin, the very first king of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that remained loyal to King David and the tribe of Judah when Israel split. If you remember in Israel's history, they split into two different camps. There were ten tribes in the north, and there were two tribes in the south. One of those tribes was the tribe of Judah, and that is where David came from, King David. And next to Judah, aligned with them in the south, was one other tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. This name means son of the right hand. And so Paul was a pure-blood Benjaminite, a, an honorable thing to claim and to have as part of the people of Israel. Lastly, as far as birth goes, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He learned Hebrew. He could speak in the Hebrew language. We see this in the book of Acts. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem as a result of Jewish persecution at this time. And we are told he began to speak to the crowd. He began to give a defense of his teaching. And this is what we hear in Acts 21. Paul, standing on the steps, addressed them in the Hebrew language. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense. 
When the Jewish crowd heard him speaking in Hebrew, in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. He's very comfortable with Greek, speaking in Greek, writing in Greek. He hasn't lost his Hebrew heritage, though. He could speak very well in Hebrew if he needed to. Now, some of the Jews, and perhaps the Jewish heretics, uh, the, even the part of the, this Jewish uh, group of heretics, some of them were also Hebrews by birth, but over time, they may have lost their Hebrew culture, and therefore they only spoke Greek, and they only read the Torah in Greek, which many of them did, actually read the Torah in Greek. Paul could speak Hebrew. He could write in Greek, but he had, again, he had not lost that Hebrew part of him. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Unlike other Hebrews that may have lost that identity and have lost familiarity with their former heritage. That was not Paul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, this is all that Paul had in his possession by birth. But what did he do? How did he act in his life? How did he live his life as a son of Benjamin? Well, he says as to the law, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a particular sect of Judaism. They were recognized among the people as being the most faithful, the most capable interpreters of Scripture. They were distinguished they distinguished themselves, this group, the Pharisee group, as being guardians of Jewish purity and holiness. Paul mentions something along these lines in Acts chapter 22 in, his, in the, the speech that he made in the Hebrew language. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and uh, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. We are also told in Acts that Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was held in high honor among the people. This group, they prided themselves on guarding Hebrew purity. To be a Hebrew of Hebrews, they wanted to see that tradition continue and to only allow Hebrew of Hebrews to be part of the covenant order, the covenant community of God's people. You can see this this part of their identity come out in the Gospels and all, and all of the contention that Jesus had with the Pharisees and their teaching. They, they prided themselves on keeping their people pure and keeping the impure, the so-called impure Gentiles out. And so he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, as to passion for this Pharisaic con- uh, tradition, Paul said he was a persecutor of the church. Now, who was this church? Well, it was the Church of Christ. It was a church of Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles, the true church, believers. The true church that Gentiles like the Philippians were now a part of. It was this church, this church bought by Christ's blood that Paul, before his conversion, persecuted. He violently persecuted them. He hunted them down. Using his own words to describe the kind of zeal that he had to maintain purity, right? He wants to guard the purity of Jews. These so-called Christians are saying anyone can be part of the covenant community. And they're letting these unclean, impure Gentiles into fellowship with pure Jews. As a Pharisee, Paul couldn't, he couldn't stand by and let that happen. And so he persecuted them. 
Using his own words to describe that zeal, he says this, in raging fury, I persecuted them. He persecuted them to death. When one was brought up on charges and executed, a Christian, Paul the Pharisee, cast his vote against them. He approved it. It's very likely that not one member of this Judaizing party that he's talking about, beware of this this heresy out there, it's very, very likely that not one member of this party near the Philippians could claim such zeal. Paul was special before his conversion. He was a leader in hunting down Christians. Not many of these Judaizers might be able to claim the same thing. Paul says as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Now we should not think that the Pharisees did not promote some kind of godly morality. They did. Jewish teaching, Pharisaical teaching did teach a a morality based on what you find in God's law. The law to them was in fact something that people could do. That people could do and they were expected to do. That was their approach to the law. You might think about the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. What did the Pharisee say? He said, God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. Such was Paul. He was not an extortioner. He was not an adulterer. He was not unjust. He gave his tithes. He fasted twice a week, most likely. He hunted down Christians. They were trying to disrupt this whole Jewish system. He hunted them down. That's how zealous he was about the Pharisaical tradition. He was blameless according to the law. He was squeaky clean in terms of a righteousness that could be observed, an outward righteous, something that could be seen by others. Paul had nothing against him. In other words, before Paul was converted, someone could look at Paul's whole manner of life And they would be able to find nothing against him. They could bring nothing against him as a charge. He was blameless. That's what this means. Not sinless. Even the Pharisees didn't teach that, a sinlessness, but blameless in terms of what others might be able to evaluate. Now, we need to stop here and remember that Paul was listing credentials that he had, that he could present Things that could be verified by anyone. I have this. If anyone thinks they have confidence in the flesh, I have it. This is my spiritual resume. I can bring it to bear at any time I please if I want to have confidence in the flesh. He says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let's compare my resume with the other resumes of these so-called Judaizers and see who has more confidence in the flesh. Paul's saying they don't compare. They they won't compete with what I can bring to the table. If we're going to live in that system, if we're going to say that you need confidence in the flesh to be accepted by God. Now, Paul, Paul was saying that this is what they are teaching. Paul is telling the Philippians, I have that. And what is Paul's estimation, though, of all of this? Well, Paul lumps all of this, and he says, if we are thinking about how to be accepted with God, then all of this that I've just listed is absolutely worthless. It's valueless. 
It's loss. It's not gain. It doesn't benefit you. It doesn't benefit anyone. It's actually loss. Verse 7. Not only is it all worthless, it's actually a liability. It actually leaves you condemned if you think this way. If you think that you can bring to bear before God all that you are and all that you've done and say, based on this, you should accept me. If you think that way, if you believe that way, you stand condemned. It's a liability then to think that you have confidence in the flesh. This would be like, maybe put this in perspective, this would be like having stacks, a a successful criminal, imagine a successful criminal having stacks and stacks of cash in his house. He counts up all this cash and he thinks, I'm rich, I can buy anything, I can do anything. But the federal government has marked all of those bills. And so once that criminal begins to spend that money, the authorities can track him down. If he's even allowed to spend that money, if it's accepted, the authorities can track him down and arrest him. The cash is a liability. He's poor. In fact, he stands condemned because of his criminal behavior. The criminal then in that situation is shown to be not only bankrupt, but also condemned. Paul says all of these things on his resume were worthless. They meant nothing. Now, not because they were bad in and of themselves. Now, persecuting the church, certainly, that's bad, right? Shouldn't do that. But the rest of it, some of that is good. To be circumcised on the eighth day, to be an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, those aren't bad things. These things are lost and worthless because before Paul came into contact with Jesus, he trusted in them. He believed that they could save him. They were his God. That's who he served, his own confidence, his own righteousness, what he perceived to be something holy and pure. He thought those things actually saved him. Paul put faith in who he was and what he had done. He believed he could earn his way into God's family. And being born a Hebrew got him very, very close to achieving that. That's what he used to believe. Of what Christ, now, what did Christ do when he saved Paul on the Damascus Road? Well, Paul, or Christ opened his eyes to make Paul clearly see his absolute unworthiness and his unholiness before God. Once Paul could, by gifted faith, once he could finally see his own spiritual filthiness and that the things in himself and the things he did were of no value whatsoever before God, once he could see that, that those things were worthless, it's then that he was able to stop trusting in them and to begin trusting in Christ alone. To begin trusting in Jesus alone, in what he has done and who he is. You see the difference. He put his confidence not in himself now. He started to put his confidence in another, namely Christ. Whatever gain I had or whatever gain I thought I had, Paul says, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, friends, we are no more accepted by God And we are no less accepted by God based on where we came from, who we were born to, what we do, or what we don't do. 
We are no more and no less accepted by God based on those things. Now, as Christians, we are called to do things. We are called to live holy lives. And we do that because we want to. But in terms of acceptance with God, your salvation, your approval of God, your adoption, where you came from, who you were born to, what you do, what you don't do, doesn't matter. It's no benefit. We are accepted by God into his family based solely upon who Jesus is and what he has done. Period. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus, according to his human nature, he was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was circumcised on the eighth day. According to his divine nature, he was in the form of God, equal with God, the son of God. As to the law, he fulfilled the law perfectly, without sin. He was truly blameless. Having perfect righteousness, he performed perfect obedience. As to zeal, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Jesus was persecuted by his own people and by the Gentiles. He offered his body as a sacrifice on the cross in order to save the church, not persecute the church. He was persecuted by his own people in order to save the church. Only Jesus has that resume. Only Jesus. And therefore, we trust in him alone. No one can bring that resume that Jesus has to bear. None of us can. And so whatever we thought we could bring, whatever we think we have, Paul says, it's lost, it's worthless. It means nothing compared to what Jesus has done. After Paul was converted, he was able to see that glory, the glory of Christ. He's able to see the infinite value of who Christ is and what he has done. And so when, we, when he compared the value of Christ and his work against what he thought he had before, confidence in the flesh, as a pure-blood Jewish Pharisee, all of that was absolutely worthless. The value of Christ's death, that is what the Philippians had come by faith to see. They believed this. They saw the value in his death. And this is what was threatened by this heresy that was in the air. And so Paul was warning them against that heresy. Paul did not want them to lose sight of Christ's worth by listening to the Jewish heresy that threatened them. And we too, friends, we should beware of false teaching that would cause us to lose sight of the infinite value of what Christ has done. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Let's pray together, friends.